feel like this is the beginning of a joke. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> now, I've, now that's what everyone's going to look at all service, right? I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the Lord's speaking to me. Okay. Well, we're going to be speaking on church discipline this this afternoon, so maybe it's telling me. Hamp, do you have anything you need to tell us? My sons, anything? No. Okay. Please open your Bibles to Judges, chapter number twenty. Judges, chapter number twenty. We are nearing the end of this book of Judges. Just one chapter left after this afternoon, this evening. One chapter left. Judges chapter number 20, the painful process of purging, the painful process of purging. I'd like to do something perhaps a little bit different than we have before because this is such a lengthy um, narrative, 48 verses that we have to go through. So we're going to go through them. There are five main sections here for this chapter, the assembly of the tribes in verses 1 through 7. The unity of the tribes in verses 8 through 11. The purging of the tribes in verses 12 through 17. The inquiries of the tribes. And then finally we find the warring of the tribes. Instead of how I have in the past uh, going through bit by bit and breaking them up, I want to read through and we'll have some commentary in between. But for the most part I'd like to read through the narrative. And then at the end we'll give theological and practical application and implications from this narrative from Judges chapter number 20. The painful process of purging. If you remember last week from the previous chapter we read, I would say, I think I could argue the darkest and most grim, the most gruesome of all the chapters in the, in the entire Bible. The most difficult chapter where atrocities happened in Israel. And because of what happened, because of the message that was sent by this Levite, remember he cut up the concubine that was abused and murdered, and he sent out her body to the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, it says in the previous chapter that she was cut up into 12 pieces. So each of the 12 tribes of Israel received this message from this Levite. Even the tribe of Benjamin that we're going to speak about, the offending tribe, received this message as well. And his message, along with her body, said the very last words in chapter 19. Very simple message. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. I don't know about you, but I've been thinking through this past week how that applies to us, how we are to consider what's going on around us, how we should be taking counsel with each other, and we should be speaking more. We continue this very same story. The story continues in chapter number 20 with this horrific story of this Levite and his concubine. Let's continue in verse number 1, and we'll find the assembly of the tribes. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. 
Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin and I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. This Levite is able to assemble all of the people of Israel for the very first time in this entire book. We find all of the tribes of Israel assembled, united together against a common enemy. This message from this Levite was very effective. It was gruesome. It was difficult to read what he did, and yet it was very effective. None of the great leaders that we've read about, Samson, Gideon, none of them were effective enough to assemble all of Israel together against a common enemy. And yet, imagine if they had united as tribes against the enemy, the Canaanites. Imagine what could have happened. They would have been unstoppable. No force could have stopped them in all of Canaan. And yet, what we find here is Israel is going to assemble, but they're only assembling for civil war. They're not fighting against Canaanites. They're fighting against their own brother, Benjamin. Why are we here is what they ask whenever in the, at their assembly. We've received your message. Now tell us why are we here in this Levite recounts the story of what had happened. Next, the story moves to the unity of the tribes in verse number 8. The unity of the tribes. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. Finally, Israel is united. We don't read of this in any other account for 20 chapters, we haven't read of Israel being united in this way. They have collected themselves to take aim against a common enemy. But this aim that they're taking is friendly fire. Instead of collectively wiping out the Canaanites around them, at last they're together in something, but their aim, their sights are set upon their own brother Benjamin. Now, if you remember the divine mandate that is all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, the divine mandate that God gave to his people through the prophet Moses and through the prophet, through the leader Joshua, the mandate that was given was go and devote them to destruction. Utterly destroy men, women, children, animals, beasts, 
set their cities on fire and take the land that I have given to you. This is the divine mandate. Drive out the inhabitants of the land. But remember the key phrase that is repeated at this latter half of the book of Judges. We're going to read it once more in the last chapter. And that is this sad commentary that is given to us over and over again. That there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. The divine mandate mattered very little to them. Finally, they are united against something. But they even get that wrong. They're united against themselves. Notice that at this point in the story, they still have not consulted with the Lord. They still have not consulted with the Lord. They are going with their own mandate. Brings us to the purging of the tribes in verse number 12. Let's continue the story. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all those were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The purging of the tribes... Benjamin is approached by the tribes of Israel as collectively the leaders approach them. And they tell them, give us these worthless men because we need to purge the evil that is among us. But Benjamin would not hear the assembly. They would not hear their brother's admonition towards them. Instead, they would rather protect rapists and murderers. They would rather go to war against their own brothers than give up these men that were with them. So Benjamin assembles 26,000 warriors and, and 700 chosen men that were left-handed. They have this special forces branch of their military, the lefties. These men were of extraordinary talent. They could sling a stone and not miss a hair, the Bible says. You remember Ehud, the judge that we read about way back in, I believe it was chapter number 3 of Judges. Ehud, who was the left-handed, left-handed judge. <laughs> he was the left-handed judge. Sorry, I have to look at my hands. No, but He was the left-handed judge who God used uniquely to penetrate through the forces of the, the wicked ruler, the very fat king that he assassinated. If you remember, he was a left-handed judge from the tribe of Benjamin. Lefties were considered to be a handicap especially in any predominantly right-handed army. It's not hard to consider how that would be a handicap. If you've ever been at a dining room table and you're right-handed, you're normal, and you have a weird handicapped left-handed person right next to you, sorry, AV, and you're trying to eat 
with your right hand and you're sitting right next to somebody that's left-handed and your elbows are constantly bump, bumping up against them, you can imagine as an army where in ancient war, many times they would be in a line fighting and you're trying to use your predominant hand and they're using their predominant hand and you're bumping up against them. This would have been a handicap in an army. However, this handicap is overcome whenever you have an entire army of left-handed men. And they're not just any left-handed men, but they are very effective with their slingshots. They never miss even the smallest targets. Now, the irony of the tribe of Benjamin being known as having this special forces army of lefties is that the very name Benjamin, maybe if you have a study Bible, you can see the name Benjamin means the son of the right hand. That's what the, that's what the word means, Benjamin, the son of the right hand. Isn't it interesting in the Lord's providence, his humor sometimes, where he has this tribe that is known, their very name is the son of the right hand, and they're known for being left-handed. They're known for being against what the name of the Lord has given them. In verse number 17, the narrator reiterates the size of this army so we can see who is up against two. Israel has summoned 400,000. And Benjamin, instead of giving over those few worthless men that were in their midst, they would rather go up against 400,000 trained soldiers with swords. Benjamin simply has 26,000 men plus the 700 special forces that are with them. <clears throat> the story continues in verse number 18. The inquiries of the tribes, finally, they begin to inquire of the Lord. Look at verse number 18. The people of Israel arose and went to Bethel and inquired of God. Look at their first inquiry. Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage. And again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day. And destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? 
And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Finally, they inquire of the Lord. However, look at their very first inquiry. Their very first inquiry in verse number 18, they say, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? They assume that they should be fighting against their own brother. They assume that. They say, they don't ask, should we fight against our brother? They say, who should we send first to fight against our brother? And the Lord responds, Judah. This is fitting because Judah was from the tribe that the victims were from. So it's fitting that Judah would go up first to defend the honor of those who were the crime was against. However, Judah is defeated. 22,000 men are defeated. And notice that the author does not tell us of any men that are lost for Benjamin. It only gives us the number emphasizing the loss, the casualties for Israel as a whole. 22,000 men are defeated in this very first battle. So they inquire of the Lord a second time. Now, if you notice, they have changed their question. In verse number 21... Sorry, verse number 23. They say, and the people, it says, And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord. This is their second, second inquiry. Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers and the, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. They go back and they think, Maybe we should ask if we should even be doing this. Should we go up against our brother? And the Lord replies, Yes, however, the results of the battle are not much better. 18,000 men are lost. And again, there's no mention of any casualties for Benjamin. So they go to the Lord one last time. It even mentions very interestingly, and we can find a, a sort of dating of where this story is, because it mentions that Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, was the priest at this time. This priest goes before the Lord, so this would have been no more than a hundred years after the death of Moses. This story took place. So the, the priest goes before the Lord and he says, Shall we go up again? We've been defeated twice now. Shall we go up against our brothers, Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord says, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. The Lord gives them a commitment, a, a divine commitment, that when you go this time, I will give them into your hand. So then this brings us to the end of the story in verse 29 through the end of the chapter, the warring of the tribes. Let's begin in verse number 29. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day. And set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways. One of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the open country about thirty men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. 
And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Merageba. And there came out against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. Now don't be confused by the rest of the story. It almost seems like there's another battle that takes place. However, the author is just giving us, he's going to give us more detail of the same story. He continues with verse 36, The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin, when he begun to struck, to strike and to kill about 30 men in Israel, they said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed. For they saw the disaster that was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noho, Noha, as far as opposite Gibeah in the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. Five thousand men of them were cut down in the highways. And they were pursued hard to guide them. And two thousand men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were twenty-five thousand men who drew the sword. All of them men of valor. But six hundred men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. And remained at the rock of Rimon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. The high point of this chapter we just read. This is the climax of the chapter, and it can be found in verses 23. Uh, 34 and 41, it's repeated. In verse number 34, the climax of this chapter is the moment that the Benjaminites realize that they are about to be annihilated. This moment we see a glimpse of in verse 34, it says, But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. They had no idea that disaster was close upon them, but then in verse number 41, then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. This idea of Herim, that the cities would be devoted to destruction, we see here at the end of this chapter. 
this divine mandate to destroy, utterly destroy, and to devote to destruction everything in the city, the men, the women, the children, even the animals, and set the, set the city on fire. Utterly destroy them. Rarely do we find Israel, especially in the book of Judges, obeying this divine mandate. Usually they're too soft, and they keep many of them, and they enslave them, they make them their slaves, they keep them in the cities with them. And the Lord tells them, don't do that, because your sons are going to marry their daughters, and they're, they're going to turn their hearts to other gods. Most often this is what we find them doing. But here, at the very end, the very last verse here, then the people of Israel against Benjamin, and they struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, the men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Against Benjamin, finally, they obey the divine mandate. Man and beast alike are set on fire. To the point that Benjamin, a tribe, a brother in Israel, is almost completely annihilated. They begin with 26,000 plus the 700 left-handed men, and they end with just 600. Just 600. Benjamin is nearly wiped off the map completely at the end of this chapter. I'd like for us to consider some key practical and theological implications from this chapter. The first one is that this chapter portrays the nation of Israel finally involved in holy war against evil. Finally, Israel is found in holy war against evil. In this chapter, we find that the people are assembled before the Lord, all of them. The priest is the one, Eleazar, is going to lead the people to seek the will of the Lord. This is what they were supposed to be doing. The Lord gives them direction for battle. The Lord goes before them and strikes down the enemy, gives them the victory. The reader could be thinking, finally, Finally, Israel is doing what they were commanded to do. Finally, they are obliterating the evil. They're devoting the land to destruction. They're finally driving out the Canaanites. Wait, this is not the Canaanites. This is their own brother that they're doing this to. Because Israel has become Sodom, as we saw in the last chapter. Israel has become Canaan. The cultural decay in Israel was so rotten, it had decayed so severely that a tribe in Israel, these men would rather go so far as to defend the evil in their own tribe, the evil acts of sodomy. They would rather defend them and fight against their brothers than to give over these evil men. Benjamin refused to give up and purge the evil amongst them. They would rather defend evil and die defending evil then give them up. They would rather go up against the entire nation and eventually almost be annihilated completely than to give up their evil brothers. The second implication is that justice is exacted against evil, and when this happens, everyone around them is affected. Everyone is affected. If you remember the story of Ai, Israel is coming into Canaan and they do pretty well against Jericho, a mighty city. It almost looks easy. 
And so they're confident and they go to the very next city, the close one, a smaller city. They don't even need to inquire of the Lord. They don't need to do much. They just can march right through them, right? AI, but AI defeats them. And then we find, we hear a man named Achan who took of the accursed thing. And this one man's sin resulted in the defeat and the death of many, many men in Israel. And in the same way, it wasn't simply Benjamin that was destroyed, but thousands upon thousands of Israelites would suffer the loss of two battles. The first one, 22,000 men in Israel. And no, Benjamin, Benjamin doesn't have any casualties, at least they're not mentioned, because the emphasis is the loss in Israel. And then the second battle, 18,000 more are lost in Israel. Thousands more at the third battle lose their lives. It's because all of Israel suffers for the sin of one city. For the sin of Benjamin, they lose their brother and they lose one-tenth, a tithe of all of the able-bodied men in all of Israel. They lose a tenth of them because of this war. The beginning, it tells us that there's 400,000 men that are assembled up against the tribe of Benjamin. And at the end, if we calculate how many are lost, 40, over 40,000 men are lost, a tenth of the men. Because when the justice is exacted from the Lord against evil, there are casualties all around them. This has practical implication for our lives, that our sin almost never just affects us. There are casualties all around us. Our sin, we have seen, if there's one thing that any parent has seen in the book of Judges, it is that our sin has a tremendous effect upon our children. It should cause us to tremble and pray the effect that, the sin, that our sin has upon our children, but even more so, church, our sin affects those who are around us, those who assemble with us. The third implication is that Israel discovers her greatest foe in the land. It wasn't the Philistines. It wasn't the Amalekites. The greatest foe in the land of Canaan for Israel was Israel. She was her own greatest enemy. And then finally, and I think the clearest implication for us today in this chapter is the picture of church discipline that we find in this chapter, this picture of church discipline. If you look at verse number 13, the assembly of the leaders in Israel, they don't go to the leaders of Benjamin with guns blazing. They don't go immediately beginning war. No, they go to them and they tell them, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. That we may purge evil from Israel. In the same sense, the elders of the church call the offending brother to give up their sin, to repent, so that the evil can be purged from our midst. But we find the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers. They would not hear them. Says in verse the end of that same verse 13, but the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And so 
they would rather fight against their brothers. The, verse that, the verses that our brother read for us from the New Testament this afternoon, we find in Matthew chapter 18, a, a very familiar passage about church discipline. In verse number 17, the Bible says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. They counted the Benjaminites as Canaanites because these men, these worthless fellows, were completely Canaanite in their character. And just as a father loves children, loves his children, his love is most often seen in his discipline for his children. No father that loves his children withheld discipline from them. In fact, the Bible gives us a picture that a man who doesn't discipline his children hates his child. And in the same sense, we cannot say that we love those in our midst if we refuse this idea, this concept of church discipline. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. I would like to look just briefly as we close at this small portion, Matthew chapter 18. The very last verse that was read says, for, there, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is maybe one of the most abused verses and ripped out of its context verses in all of our day today in Christianity. Those who would say, they would quote this verse and they would say, why do I need to go to church? Because wherever two, me and my wife, or me and my friend, or me and my mom, are gathered, there Christ is in the midst of them. So we don't have any need to go and assemble in a church. We don't need to do that. We can do everything that you do at church. We can do that at home. We can be with ourselves, reading the Bible, and it's the same benefit that you have at church. The irony of all ironies that they miss is that this verse is given in the context of church discipline. And my question for them would be, how on earth do you exercise church discipline or how do you receive the discipline that you need from the Father, from the church that he's given for your discipline? How do you receive that if it's you and your mom at home or you and your wife at home or you and your husband at home? You don't receive the discipline of the church and you cannot be a part of the discipline that the church gives. And so uh, this verse is completely stripped of its context. My question is, can the church be wrong about discipline in some sense? Could the church get it wrong? I would say maybe. Can the elders mishandle discipline to some degree that they misstep? That's what I mean. And I would say possibly. Could they handle or mishandle a, a detail in the discipline process that goes on? Yes, they could. And so I hear rumblings very often today of supposed mishandlings of churches in church discipline. And it, every time it causes me to pause. And it's not because I believe that good men couldn't possibly handle discipline or mishandle discipline, that they're incapable of that. And it's not because I think that 
never that's, that, that has never happened. But the reason is because most often people are stubbornly opposed to the idea of discipline and they would rather defend evil than purge it in their midst. I've been involved in very serious and very difficult cases of church discipline. So much so that elder sessions were divided, very divided on what to do and how to handle it. So much so that it motivated us to hours upon hours of prayer and consultation and counseling and calling other pastors to weigh in and arguing as brothers over how to handle this very extremely difficult situation that is in front of us. How do we carefully word it to the offender? How do we carefully communicate that to the church in a way that honors Christ and does not harbor bitterness towards the offender? And yet, almost every time afterwards, mouths flap, rumors begin, everyone is not satisfied. Everyone has their opinion, even though they only have a fraction of the details, because all of the details cannot be given. I think this is a part of church discipline that so often many do not understand. They're quick to share their opinion on the internet and with everyone around them when they only have a small percentage of what actually happened. If, God forbid, we were ever in such a case or you ever found yourself in such a case of church discipline, I'd like to give us some principles to consider for this painful process of purging. The first one is that I would commend us to pray for our elders to have wisdom. They are men. They are men. They are fallible. They can mishandle various aspects of discipline. That is possible. They can be overcome with passion on a particular point and be too harsh. But on the other side, they could also be too lenient. And so we need to pray that they have a godly balance between being gentle and being firm and strong. I've talked to a pastor who is a very dear friend of mine and he has shared with me his testimony that every single time that they have a case of church discipline, he knows, he just knows within his mind that absolutely no one is going to show up to church the next Sunday. It feels heavy and he believes that it's going to destroy the church. But his testimony is that every single time, this man has been in ministry for well over 20 years, and he is, he, his testimony is that every single time that they have had to do this, the Lord has not diminished their numbers, but he has very clearly grown them in numbers after that. Now, that's not a guarantee that that would happen, of course. However, it shows us the testimony that discipline is from the Lord, and he blesses discipline whenever it is given in faithfulness. The second thing is that we would pray for the offender Pray for the offender. Pray for repentance and humility. Pray that their will will be broken and that they would be brought unto the submission of Christ. Pray that they will not harden their necks to the correction of the Lord. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds 
of a friend. You know how that you have a good friend? They're willing to call you out on your junk. That's one way I could say it. <laughs> They're willing to call you out on your sin. That's how I know I have a, a really good friend. I know that I have a strong relationship because our relationship is strong enough to withstand some criticism that I need. That's a strength in a friendship. Pray for the offender that they would not harden their neck to correction. The third thing is the goal is always to obey the Lord. And we pray. I've heard many times that the goal, and I think I've even said that the goal is always restoration. We do pray for the restoration. However, if the goal is restoration, then sometimes we will do anything even be lax in order for there to be restoration. But the goal is always to please the Lord rather than man. We should pray for restoration, not humiliation, not revenge. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, it says that the reason that we would practice this church discipline, one of the goals it says is, for you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Those are very strong words. Deliver them to Satan? Why would we do that? So that their flesh may be destroyed, so that they may be saved. This is for their salvation. Fourthly, discipline only happens inside of the church. In that same chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, it says, For what have I do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside, sorry, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, the argument of those who would believe that they can assemble out just with one or two people in their own home. They are not within the church. They are outside of the gift of discipline. Discipline only happens inside the church. And then finally, lastly, discipline, we should stand with the decision of the church. Stand with the decision of the church. And obviously, I'm not speaking of gross accounts of abuse here. However, every detail is not able to be given publicly. We need to understand that. To protect the offender, there are certain details that are left out in almost every case that I've ever heard. Many times, we are judging with less details than the elders have whenever they are giving this account. But the Bible says that the church holds, holds the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 18. And through discipline, those, king, those keys are exercised. And this is the way that works. The church, through the preaching of the gospel, opens the door to salvation, to the kingdom of heaven. Through the preaching of the gospel, those keys open that door to all who will believe. And through church discipline, the church closes the door to the kingdom of heaven, to those who will not repent of their sin. This is a very serious and grave matter of church discipline. In closing tonight, I just want to read this small portion of Matthew 18 once more for us. Let us consider this matter of church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the exhortation and reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account that we find in the book of Judges. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to see the truths that are found in the scriptures. Lord, we pray that your, your church would be serious once more, as it was in days of old, about this very serious matter of church discipline. Lord, may we be found faithful to purge the evil in our own lives, to purge the evil among us. Lord, we pray that you alone would be glorified in all that we do and say. For it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.